Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in a rather lovely Spring Bay area. It's lovely and it's Valentine's Day. And today I'm joined by my Valentine, Mick Wright, in London. What you got planned on this most romantic of days, Mick? Um, uh, well, we just had some dinner. I'm uh, going to drink some wine later, probably. That's a, that's about as a... As a I can I can share on a podcast format. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that you have lots of special cuddles later. Uh, normally, Mid Atlantic uh, features myself, uh, a pundit in England and a pundit in the United States. But because of the vagaries and uh, dare I say it, uh, the problems with internet communications, it's just Mick and I today. We were going to be joined by Sean Stokes in Fremont, California, but we're going to leave that. For another episode in a week that has seen a Brexiteer complain that he's had to wait in a queue at an EU airport. This is not the Brexit I voted for, he said on Twitter, and this was not a parody account. We asked, how will the democratic race change after New Hampshire? Big development in the race for the White House. The results now in from the first primary in the nation. Bernie Sanders pulling ahead, winning New Hampshire with Pete Buttigieg close behind. So after two contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, Sanders wins the popular votes. Buttigieg has the most delegates. And Amy Klobuchar has surpassed both Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden after her strong debate performance. All this is setting up what could be a long fight for the nomination. Well, after a chaotic beginning to primary voting overnight, these first decisive results were a crowning moment for the new frontrunners, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. But with moderates and progressives still split and every top candidate vowing to fight on, this contest is anything but settled. This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. Overnight, Senator Bernie Sanders with a narrow granite state victory. It's on to win the Democratic nomination. Sanders consolidating support from the left, but coming in a close second, moderate former mayor Pete Buttigieg. 
a campaign that some said shouldn't be here at all has shown that we are here to stay. Putting forward a new perspective is how Democrats win the White House, and we will win the White House. And a surprise third-place finisher. We have beaten the odds every step of the way. Fueled by her strong debate performance, Senator Amy Klobuchar vaulting into the top tier. Former Vice President Joe Biden coming in a distant fifth, speaking to supporters from South Carolina. It ain't over, man. We're just getting started. Mick, two states have now voted in the Democratic primary race. Now the race is moving to less white states. How can we expect to see the runners and riders change? Obviously, it's going to benefit Sanders in the in the in the coming more diverse states because his support is just is just better across the board in terms of um, ethnic diversity amongst his supporters. A lot of the reporting around this stuff has been really odd in a sense that they've been quite focused on the people who aren't winning or are coming second or third and not focused on the fact that Bernie is winning these primaries. Um, whether or not you think he can win the general, you know, it's, it's it's a matter of contention. I think he could, but it's interesting the way that the reporting at least has been going around on these things. And, and also interesting when you think about Bloomberg existing to the side of this primary process, you know, choosing to ignore the initial primaries and instead, you know, pour money um, into advertising to sort of force himself into the race. Well, voters, I think, should be quite unsettled by that because it's yet another billionaire trying to buy the election. All right, let's move back slightly because you, you, you've, you've accurately figured out where I'm going to go with my questions here. And I have <laughs> questions around American democracy and buying uh, buying votes, buy, buying airtime, buying influence, etc., and uh, the ramifications of potentially having two billionaires running through the president of the United States. But let's look at just on the face of it, the appeal of the various runners and riders in the race at the moment. And one of the interesting things uh, that you've uh, that you've said, and, and many pundits have also said, is that uh, the papers are not exactly saying the media, sorry, are not exactly saying that you know Bernie has won. It's a case of oh, Amy Klobuchar is third. You know, she's she's come up on the rails. Hasn't Mayor Pete done really well? Is this a case of the Democratic Party establishment being anti-Bernie? From a European perspective, I think it's very odd the way that a... like a Demo- Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist, right? He's not super far left by, by the standards of a, a European democracy. If you... If you translated him to Sweden or Denmark or any of those nations where social democratic politics is pretty common, you go, oh, okay, look, he's he's a social democrat. But to, in the US, he's being presented as this like very far left extremist. And I, I, I don't think that's that's accurate. It might be accurate within the filter of American politics, but he's not the radical that people are making him out to be. But within the media in the US, that's the way he's treated. And so candidates uh i guess candidates like mayor pete and candidates like amy Klobuchar, kombucha <laughs> i can't get that surname right <laughs> uh, are kind of treated Klobuchar. as if they're uh, yeah Klobuchar are, are a better a better bet i don't think they really are i think mayor pete would be absolutely eradicated um 
in in the general election. I also think that Mayor Pete is very much a Why? establishment candidate, the candidate of big business, the candidate of the big donors, and that's that's a problem. Do, do you think that what Buttigieg is is the suburban liberal's answer to Obama? You know, he encapsulates hope. He's eloquent, telegenic, and relatively young. He's just a twenty twenty gay white Obama. But he's not, though, is he? I think it's brave. Brave may be the wrong word. It's noteworthy that in 2020, the world has come on at such a clip and America has come on at such such a pace that you can have a major politician who is not only out and gay, but, but married and gay. And I understand the appeal on the face of it that he has, because he is a smart guy. There's no two ways about it. He is incredibly eloquent and he's incredibly thoughtful. And what he seems to encapsulate for Americans is for some section of uh, the American democratic voting base is the fact that here is somebody whose patriotism cannot be uh, questioned at all. Served in the military, served with distinction and oh come on though no, john, john kerry john kerry served in the military and served with distinction they still managed to you know undermine his uh, well against against said, the man who you know george bush said, who mick, who avoided mick, the draft mick hence i said the democratic voting base and yeah. one of the one of the issues that the democratic party uh faces is always this tinge of being anti-american that, it, that it's far left fringes, they're not patriotic. Here is somebody who uh, can wave the Democratic Party flag and say, I absolutely am, I fought for this country, put my, put my life on the line, etc. South, South Bend is 26, 26% um, black or Af- black. African-American. Okay, so, so it's significant, utterly significant. Yeah, yeah. It, it had, there, there, for, has had problems not just with his messaging, but actually with truly connecting with black democratic voters. And I think the the policies that he aligned himself, or more to the point with the, the kind of the policy oversight with his police department is somewhat of a significant wrinkle, but that isn't the reason why he has struggled to diversify his coalition, which almost universally is pretty white well i i guess i guess i'll use it i'll use a i'll make a comparison with this mm. right so i know i know and i've written a fair bit about um irish politics right and and, and particularly around the latest irish general election and outside of ireland leo varadka was sort of seen as this inspiring international state totally. particularly because he was um ireland's first um you know, openly gay T-shirt, right? Mm. But the reality within Ireland was that it was quite clear to people that although his he you know his sexuality it was a uh, a new thing uh, amongst uh, leading politicians in Ireland, his political viewpoint was quite centre right, if not further across from centre right, and that his political instincts were extremely conservative and that's that's what i see with mayor pete is i see a person who is in no way intersectional i I think i think that's harsh i think that's harsh he he made a speech in south carolina about a month ago uh no about two months ago where he said very clearly i'm not a person of color but i am 
a minority. And as such, I don't claim to, to feel all of your pain, but I do stand in solidarity with, with other minorities. It's bullshit. That it's is bullshit. How is it bullshit? Go. Go the trouble with 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 Mepi is that he, he Mepi is a is a is a great example of what we would have called in the early days of the of of the Blairite um, efforts in the UK of of triangulation. He, his whole campaigning efforts, even perhaps his military service, and some people have said this who knew him as a younger man, have been built around creating a perception of himself that. Uh, you know, is is geared around triangulating to try and uh, position himself as centrally as possible to bring in as many votes as possible. The other thing you've got to look at, but wait a minute, look at where he's taking his money from. Look at his attitude around Medicare. I have have more of a problem with that. And what Mayor Pete is is an incrementalist at at best. Mayor Pete isn't saying that the system is fundamentally broken. He's saying uh, the odd little tweak here and there. That that's fundamentally his position, but I think there's. I mean, I don't. I, I, it's bad. I like. I feel. Uh, I feel uncomfortable in a way to be a white man telling you, a person of color, look, listen to the people of color. But what I'm saying is, I think we should perhaps give a little bit more weight to um, the African American voters of South Bend, to minorities that have dealt with him in government, who are saying this is a man who doesn't understand or give enough. Um, thought to minority issues i think we should be right. looking and saying okay that's interesting that that's that's a data point that it has a lot of value you, we should also be looking have. about the fact that his top donors are mckinsey you know i i have i have more of a problem much more of a visceral reaction to that i, I absolutely i do that in that way he does feel like a very establishment traditional um democratic party politician and and he comes I mean, the from other reason that I would great slew of uh, corporate money. Absolutely. The other thing and that we, I would say that matters one is... second, one one second. So because because we don't just make this just about Mayor Pete per se, because we need to go through all the runners and riders. No, but no. That, but listen, the thing I'm going to say now is going to bring mm. us back to talking about the others, right? And and talking uh, about okay. what matters to the Democratic Party, which is this. The reason that I think he is an issue is that I think that it is so important that whoever the Democratic nominee is must build a coalition of voters, right? Must draw, must get voters, uh, must both bring voters back who who were on, who voted for Trump, but also get voters out who haven't been voting. And the black vote has been suppressed massively over the years, Um People should listen to a really good um, uh, record by Yellow Pain, actually, called My Vote Don't Count, which is where he's talking about how black voters got out to vote for Obama, but they didn't get out in the midterms after that to to vote. Um, well, the best to ensure that Con- listen, absolutely, absolutely, and but the best. You know, so this is the issue. Sergeant. So I think I think that's why it's interesting about Bernie because Bernie's vote is strong in those areas. I think that's why it's interesting that Biden hasn't been doing that well because everyone's notion has been, oh well, Biden's actually got um, a strong minority vote cu- coming over from the fact that he was Obama's. Um, VP, which I don't actually think is borne out by the facts. And I think it's interesting when you look at someone like Elizabeth Warren, who just doesn't have the cut through that, um, you know, certain liberal intelligentsia columnists thought she might have. Um, 
that's that's where it's difficult. You've got to have a coalition. You've got to have a coalition of a diverse set of voters. And I don't think that Pete can do that. I don't think Elizabeth Warren has been doing that. I certainly don't think Biden's doing that. So at this point, you know, with who's available, it's it's Bernie. And I think Bloomberg is, you know, a distorting anti-democratic voice in the race. But won't Bernie scare off those Midwestern, uh, socially conservative, democratic voters? They're vulnerable to the slings and arrows that Fox News et al. are going to throw at Bernie in that it's crazy Bernie. That's what Trump calls him, crazy Bernie. He's a socialist. He's un-American. He's unpatriotic. Yeah, and, I, I, and, I think and, the and difference between... Have, what, go on. Uh, no, I, I think I, look. That's absolutely true. But I think the different. I think the difference between him and someone like Hillary Clinton is, is that is that Bernie is a shit kicker. Like Bernie is going to stand up there and he's going to actually, um, it, he will fight back and he will. Uh, he has a, a level of authenticity to him that some of these other candidates don't have. In the sense that. And I think that actually that could work very effectively against Trump because you've got someone who's going to stand up there and 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 be authentic and authenticity. I think it will matter and I think Mm. it can matter against Trump. And I think he will be much more of a street fighter in, in, in debates against Trump when he gets on that stage up against him in the glare where it is possible for him to actually get blows on Trump. Do I think he'll win? God knows. I still, I'm still on the, I'm still on the, uh, of the opinion that Trump will probably win uh, again. I do. I think he'll probably win again. There's a, there's an incumbency factor. Right. There's a factor Let- that the economy is still. Um, it's strong. Okay. It's doing okay. All you right, know, but a, a strong economy is a, Let- is an effective way to stay in. That, as an that sounds like, like that sounds like an ending statement for this for this section and we're not quite there yet so um is bernie just the the mirror of trump uh his path of victory if he was to be victorious would be similar to trump's in that he's an outsider in a crowded divided field normally he wouldn't stand a chance uh whatever his politics were in, in a regular field maybe you know two or three other candidates but it's a divided field and he has a hardened but loyal following and that's the way of which you can see Bernie Sanders possibly getting a path to victory. It's kind of interesting that in both uh, both races in Iowa and in New Hampshire, he's got a, a kind of similar vote share. It's around about a quarter. You know, Trump had kind of similar figures, but it was that divided field. So is Bernie the mirror of Trump? Discuss. Well, he's a mirror of Trump in that respect, yeah. probably, in that he's an out, he's an outsider to the Democratic mm-hmm. Party. You know, at certain times in his political career, he hasn't he not, hasn't not really been a, a Democrat. Party. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He's he's he, you know he's an independent who's who, who's wearing blue for these primaries. His legislative career is is not storied. He, he hasn't really passed that much legislation um, in his whole time, um, and that's why you know done. some people. Yeah, and this is why some people give him that comparison. Also, compare him to uh, a Corbyn type figure uh, in the UK. I think that's not that's not a fair analog. But I think the difference between Bernie and Trump is this: Trump doesn't really believe anything. Trump's beliefs are um, floating. You know, they are very. In the end, what Trump has actually been in government is a very sort of standard Republican. He's done what 
Republicans always do, which is they talk a lot about how it's terrible that there's a big deficit. But when they're actually in power, they end up massively inflating the deficit. And the issue being, you know, Democrat deficit's terrible, Republican deficit's fine. Um, But I think Bernie actually believes in things that could Mm. be uh, an advantage to him or it could be a problem. It's difficult to say how that will be. Um, I think you're also like if you have a a Trump Bernie um, contest in the general, then what you have is a question of are there going to be some black swan events that play in favor of one or the other? You know, there are things that could happen that are uh, unknowns at this point that could be uh, hugely advantageous to one or the other. Um, And that's difficult to say what would happen when they were in there. I think the establishment media perspective on this that bernie can't win etc etc i think that they should maybe be a little bit more um modest about their own predictive abilities because that's what they said about trump their ability to predict the thoughts and actions of the electorate has not been borne out by uh their predictions during the previous election and their predictive powers throughout the trump presidency they've really called almost nothing correct so I would be a little bit more circumspect if I were them uh, about suggesting that I know it all. The rise of Senator Klobuchar has been quiet but rapid. You talked about triangulation with Pete Buttigieg and you said that it was a, a dirty word. Uh, but triangulation is definitely the, the, the key that any kind of politician needs in terms of building any kind of coalition. And especially if one is running in a primary and then goes to a general election because you have to subtly move, don't you? Um, Senator Klobuchar, as I said, um, has been uh, kind of come from nowhere to be third. She is on the right of the party, seen as somewhat of a centrist in American politics, but she's a Midwesterner. And surely, as somebody who represents a great state of Minnesota, uh, you can't get more Midwestern than that. Is she the type of Democrat, kind of no-nonsense, kind of tells it how it is, but doesn't scare the horses? Is she the type of uh, Democrat that the party will need to take on Trump in November? No. Why not? (sighs) Because who's genuinely enthusiastic about Amy Klobuchar? Who, who, Uh, who, honestly... Potentially, potentially 50% of the Democratic uh, Party's voting base, i.e. women. You know, it's you look bollocks. at... It's bollocks and it's patronising No, 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 no. It's no, bollocks. No, Mick, no, I'm no, trying I... to... Mick, Mick, let, 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 let me just cue you up, then you go. I've struggled to understand the reason why people have got so excited about her. She's been pretty good in the last two Democratic debates. She hasn't been standout. But when you look at the fact that somebody like Kamala Harris has dropped out and Kamala Harris really was a centrist, uh, you've had the faltering campaign of Warren and the fact that some of the some of the accusations thrown at Warren is that she's somewhat robotic. She wasn't a warm figure, etc. That I think we underestimate the, the power of potentially female voters just saying it's about time there was a female president. The last 45 have all looked to the same. It's about time we did have one. At the end of the day, um, here is somebody who on paper has the triangulation, as you mentioned before, to be able to defeat Donald Trump. And you know what? She's a woman. I'm going to put my vote with her. The way that people vote isn't always strictly on policy, and especially when 
when you go from candidate to candidate, that you can you can't put uh, a fag paper's width between them. By the time we get from a Bernie to a Biden, there's a massive difference. But if you if but if you start at Biden and then you go policy positions, you go Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar. Fundamentally, they're all kind of the same. So if you're going, I'm on that wing of the party. I don't want to scare the horses, but I just want to see a woman up there. Maybe that accounts for some of her success. Okay, well, look, here's the thing with this, right? That's well, I, I believe that to be massively patronising to both voters within the female voters within the Democratic primaries and female voters in the general, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the notion that it's like we want to have a woman president and it doesn't really matter what woman it is as long as it's a woman president is 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 patronising. Voters will feel that, right? That that was the mistake. Well, I, I, I no, no, wait, wait, wait. You've said your you've said your bit. I was, wait now. Now uh, that's patronizing. That was one of the issues with the Hillary um, campaign is that Hillary tried to uh, wait. Wait now, right? That was one of the issues with the Hillary campaign. Yeah, you see the pro- the problem with Klobuchar is 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 it goes beyond um, this thing of like oh well she's you know she's a female candidate like the the issue, there's a lot of issues with her that were that would come up if she was the candidate in the general for instance she jailed a teenager for life despite there being obvious flaws in the case um she was a really really massive zealous proponent of harsher sentencing for juveniles right yeah. um she's got a reputation for abusing her staff um regularly leaving employees in tears these kind of things you know they will be quite useful as counter um uh, you know as attacks on her if she if she was the candidate in the general she won't be the candidate in the general by the way not a chance um so you know i i, I do think it's patronizing in the end to come back to what i was saying previously mm. to just say oh she's a woman uh, therefore, she should be the candidate because women want to vote for a woman. I, I, don't, I think women want to vote for a candidate they can be passionate about. I didn't. I didn't say she's just a woman. I said it's part of a triangulation. It's it's part of the appeal. I also said she's a Midwesterner. She's relatively moderate. You know, she stands in lockstep with many of American ideals. You know, she's from a relatively small state in, in terms of population. She's not a coastal elitist, etc. So she has that, supposedly, that kind of pragmatic kind of bent to her. She's not an ideologue at all. I think that's a problem in the end because she doesn't, she, a, a bland, centrist, not entirely sure what she stands for other than fairly right-ish policies, uh, not rightish as in mm. correct but rightish as in politically to the right that's not going to beat trump that's not going to beat trump i i think i think you you you've got to be um willing to fight a a hard and radical campaign and and to and to cut through the messaging and not it's not enough to 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 appear to be someone that it would be sort of uh, you know, abstractly difficult for Trump to attack because Trump will find a way to attack them. That's 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 no question. I mean, he's a playground bully with a with a a, a very well honed instinct for you know creating childish jibes to attack people with. So uh, you know, I think she's a she's a real problem. It, it, essentially, I just think I think she she wouldn't 
get anywhere with that. I think kind of the heart of what you're saying is one of the conundrums that the Democratic Party and Democratic Party operatives are going through at the moment, that if you look at the, the lineups, whether it's Trump against Biden, Trump against Buttigieg, Trump against whoever, Klobuchar, invariably, the Democrats always comes out ahead. And there is this very strong argument that basically says that whoever is put up, as long as they're relatively competent, one second, a relatively competent, uh, whoever you put up against Trump will do well because Trump is Trump. Trump is so divisive in and of himself that as long as you put up uh, somebody who can uh, articulate a few lines and doesn't upset suburban housewives that can take along enough black voters with them, enough Hispanics, a few white blue collar uh, working voters, as well as the liberals, you're going to defeat this president because at best he's a 40 to 42 percent president. That's what he is. He's so divisive that actually what he's doing is being the best recruiting sergeant for the Democratic Party in terms of just getting people out to the polls because people are just tired of him. That's wishful thinking. And, I, I, and that's, that's... But, but look at the midterms. The, the midterms, Democratic voters came out to vote in their droves because it was literally anybody but Trump. And the problem is with Bernie, and I'm not anti-Bernie per se, but the problem is with, with the Bernie Sanders is that certain sections of the media will paint him out to be polarizing. And he has this problem, as we said very at the start of this. I mean, and we kind of have to have to move on. And we haven't really done Uncle Joe yet. Um, in that the problem is with Bernie Sanders is that there is a media campaign basically to discredit, to to ignore. So, wow, Pete came second. Wow, Amy's third. Oh, by the way, Bernie won. Yeah, I can't disagree with that, but I think they're foolish because I think I think that the midterms and the poll numbers are uh, they have less bearing on on how the general election will play out than than you think. Uh, partly because I think you will find that more of Trump's base will will uh, get out and vote in the general than voted in the midterms. I, I do. I, there's a big tendency historically for people to just not take the midterms as serious as they should. Um, voters, and I yeah. think, and I, yeah, voters to not take them as seriously as they should. And I think that I think that it is a foolish and sort of a liberal fantasy to think that, uh, well, Trump's not polling that well now, so uh, he'll he'll do badly in the general. I think that, uh, there's a very high chance that what happens in the 2020 election is what happened in. Uh, his first election, which is that he loses the popular vote, but he he wins the electoral college again. It's a problem with the with the U.S. system, but it's it's a problem that, that they that, you know hasn't got been got rid of and is still going to be there. And I think that could be the result again. And when it comes to Uncle Joe, I, I, I honestly I think Biden sh- should withdraw from the race now. I, I really do. I, I think he it's it, it performance in the in the primaries is very indicative of. Um, the problem with with him generally, and if you look at the way he acts towards voters, treats voters, the man is not a presidency winner. He he wasn't when he fought primaries and fought um, presidential campaigns earlier in his career when he was a much younger man, and he certainly isn't now. And if he were to be up against Trump, um, Trump will eviscerate him. Uh, he really will. Uh, there's, Biden loses that painfully, painfully. Um, 
So, and everyone will go, well, how did that happen? And and I'm telling you now, you know, the, the reasons for it are obvious why it would happen. All right, let, let's quickly just go on to the, the last uh, significant uh, remaining person in the race, which is Mike Bloomberg. And uh, he currently is at 15% in the polls. Uh, he hasn't had his name on any of the ballots, whether it's in Iowa or in New Hampshire to date. Are we heading for a showdown between Bernie and Mike, the populist against the plutocrats? Well, two things. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a very good chance that we could end up with Bloomberg versus Bernie in, in the, the the final knockings. I think that's very likely if it becomes Bloomberg versus Trump in the general, uh, Trump wins um, again, uh, <laughs> frankly. Um, uh, what does it say about American politics? It says nothing good about it. And it said it would say that the Democrats, like the Republicans, had given up on the notion of true democracy in American politics because to allow Bloomberg to buy the race in such a nakedly transparent way would be offensive in the extreme. Look, money has been buying these races for years, but to do it so blatantly and disrespectfully would would take it to another level. I think, I think frankly, you look at Bloomberg's record, the man is a, well, really, Bloomberg and Trump are, very very similar they're very very similar and they they and when it comes down to it their attitudes aren't aren't that different either not really i think it's harsh to say that they're similar i think in in terms of one of them um is truly is a self-made man if you see that as being uh, an important distinction between him and trump and i would say it's relatively important i'm not talking about where they got their money though i'm talking about the way they use their money and the way they act with their money mm. You know, I, I, I think, again, I, I, I hate to, you know, put it around, put it um, into racial territory again. But look at the way that minorities were treated by the NYPD under the, the period of Bloomberg being Stop and the, the New York. Uh, you, 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 yeah. you, you're, you're completely right. And. Look, there's a, someone. I, 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 and I'm sorry because I don't remember who wrote the t- the original tweet. But someone made a really good point um, the other day. Was they said, you know, if you are mayor of New York and the NYPD doesn't come out protesting against you, there's a very good chance you're a racist, right? And and that's all I'm going to say about <laughs> that's that's kind of my final point on the Bloomberg thing is that Bloomberg's bloomberg's policies the way those policies played out the way those policies had a material effect on minorities within new york city was inherently a very bad thing and and to have him be um president of the united states would be a bad thing i think too does it mean anything that he has come out in the last couple of years um well after his uh mayoralty term his, his term has been mayor has been over but he has come out and said that uh, stop and frisk um did target african-americans and other people of color and he regrets it he has actually said that now does that matter it's easy to say that now it's easy to say that now do you know is it uh, like to me that butters very few parsnips i i just think uh, you know we should judge the man not on his words but on his actions we should judge him on his record with um in government not on not on latter you know um uh, political equivocations and and um, re uh, evaluations of of his actions. That's that's the way I see it. And I, I really I think I think that 
the fact that Bloomberg thinks he can buy the race, the fact that Bloomberg won't get involved and actually, you know, actually, how dare he really look at the primary process and think, well, I don't need to, I don't need to bother with this. I'll just, you know, I'll just circumvent that. I'll jump over that. I'll just put my, I'll just spend the money and I'll, I'll buy the votes for myself. That just tells you everything you need to know about him. Taking out your crystal ball, who will be the top three candidates left after Super Tuesday? Top four. Uh, Clumbacher, Mayor Pete, Bernie, and Warren. You don't, Clumbacher, okay. You don't think Elizabeth Warren is going to drop out uh, after Super Tuesday? Mm, maybe not. I feel like I feel like she. I think she could end up. Uh, winning or or coming uh, coming uh, better placed in some of the some of the forthcoming primaries. I think Biden is going uh, to whether Biden drops out. I think Biden Biden might cling on. It's difficult to say, but uh, I don't think Biden's going to perform much better in the forthcoming primaries. He has none of the big mo as uh, tedious political um, operators tend to phrase it. Cool. And and after talk about the big mo. We move on to the big bow. It's Boris Johnson and his infrastructure projects in the United Kingdom. So today, Mr. Speaker, the cabinet has given high speed rail the green signal. We are are going to get this done. And to ensure that we do so without further blowouts on either cost or schedule, we are today taking decisive action. I will be appointing a minister whose full-time job will be to oversee the project. Some have suggested delaying or even cancelling HS2 in order to get Northern Powerhouse Rail done more quickly. But I want to say to you, uh, Mr Speaker to the House, this is not an either-or proposition. Both are needed and both will be built as quickly and as cost-effectively as possible. And to make sure that happens, we will, working closely with Northern leaders, explore options for creating a new delivery vehicle for Northern Powerhouse Rail. And we will start treating HS2 north of Birmingham, Northern Powerhouse Rail and other local rail improvements as part of one integrated master plan, High Speed North. Once again, we see the government taking ideas from the Labour Party. (laughs) Adopting our language, but falling very long way short on the substance of it. Boris Johnson is overseeing the construction of Britain's biggest infrastructure project since the Second World War, the 250-mile-an-hour HS2 high-speed railway from London to Birmingham, which then will go on to Manchester and Leeds, with HSBC Bank, Talk Talk and Deutsche Bank amongst companies who have relocated some of their operations out of the southeast. It looks like this could be the start of high-speed rail and a new transport and infrastructure policy for the United Kingdom. Mick, why do many think that HS2 is vital to the country's future? Uh, well, because they see it as a, I guess they see it as a rebalancing of the economy in the sense that it almost changes the mental space that people have around thinking about about the country. When you can think about, well, um, to travel between um, London and cities in the north, is the, the time to do that is suddenly compressed. It changes the realities around where people can live and work and the way that um, 
commuting can work. I think actually in reality, it's probably not as, as simple as that. I think it, it's going to take a long time for that to happen. I think that there are wider social and cultural issues that's a simple change in, in, in transport infrastructure doesn't fix. Um, I think that there are other investments within the North and Midlands that are required to, to actually make that work. And I'm not sure if they're happening. Um, there are interesting things to be said around the government's um, commitment, uh, whether you believe it or not, to uh, reversing some of the beaching cuts of the 50s in terms of local railway and, and creating more connectivity from smaller towns and cities. So it, it's complicated, but I think that's the reason why. Hopefully that's an answer that works with the question that you asked, but, you know, it's slightly divergent. No, 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 I, I, think, I think it's spot on the money. That's just putting a high-speed rail link between London and let's say Leeds is not going to fix all of the UK's ills. But as somebody who's now spent a lot of time in the United States and as somebody who's travelled around Europe extensively, it doesn't half shock me when I think about uh, kind of uh, economically how different the UK is in terms of, let's say, Italy or the United States or let's say Germany. And I always use this as an example for people. So if if I'm an, a, a, a young American kid and I want to make it in fashion, wherever I born and brought up in the United States, the answer is you need to go to New York. If I want to make it as an actor, chances are I'm going to end up in Los Angeles. If I want to make it in software, it's going to be San Francisco. If I want to make it in aerospace, the answer is Seattle. If I want to make it in politics, the answer is uh, Washington, D.C., the answer for all of those questions in the United Kingdom is London. Ditto Italy. If it's fashion, I'm going to head to, head to Milan. If it's manufacturing, engineering, design, etc., it's going to be Turin. Politics, it's going to be Rome. Germany has this rich history of being um, a collection of principalities, kingdoms and city-states. So hence... Uh, it has manufacturing bases in, in the southwest. It has beer and culture in Bavaria. It has shipping up in Bremen uh, and in Hamburg, etc. In the north, and then politics in um, politics in Berlin and finance in Frankfurt. We need to massively rebalance the UK economy, and and, and the shocking thing is for me, being a Brummie, looking at the the relative decline of the city of Birmingham is as late as the 1960s per head of the population Birmingham was actually richer than London and all the way through the 70s it's at level pegging and it's really at the the start of the 80s uh, with, with Thatcherism that Birmingham falls off a, a relative cliff or flatlines more, more accurately and and London grow exponentially because of financial deregulation yeah yes yeah, the big bang the big bang did that yeah. and, um, and, it's, and it's killed um, economic growth and aspiration in the UK regions. You know, the cities that buck the tre- buck that trend are very few and far between. Edinburgh has a very strong, uh, stable middle class base and is seen as um, a cultural hub. And funny enough, Bristol. Uh, Manchester has gone through uh, a cycle of boom and bust. Liverpool is struggling on on its way back to some kind of parity to where, where it was 50, 60, 70, 70 years ago. But it still has a long way to go. So I, I must admit, being a Brummie, I'm, I'm completely all for uh, the reasons behind HS2, though kind of like, like some of the kind of pundits have actually said, 
I'm, I'm a little bit worried that uh, Birmingham is maybe a little bit too close. And actually what it means is not necessarily that companies will move from London to Birmingham. Like HSBC Bank ha- has actually done that. It's moved its headquarters from Canary Wharf to Birmingham, and that's great. But that Birmingham will become uh, a glorified commuter town for London if it's only 40 minutes from the centre of Birmingham uh, to into London. Um, but Mick, why has it been historically that us Brits have been so bad at large infrastructure projects. Uh, the French can do it, the Germans can do it, the Japanese can do it, the Chinese absolutely can do it. Why is it that, that uh, plucky old Britain, uh, which is a proud history in the Victorian age of uh, engineering projects, that we just can't basically do this stuff? Well, what I would say about that is, like, look, it's, it's all about, it's all about um, the framing of these projects. It's not actually about we can't do them. The Channel Tunnel is a good example, right? That that's been a, a hugely successful project when it's actually finished, but it had an it had an eighty percent overspend. The, the issue with that is really is what happens is we tend to have um, politicians and policymakers who underestimate the cost of these projects, so then have to suffer during. Uh, the time and money overspends that happen in large infrastructure then have to suffer the bad press that comes from people going, oh, this was pegged at 50 billion and it's cost 100 billion. That's really, it's not representative of our inability to do big industrial projects. It's about our inability to correctly estimate the time and cost required. Really, we're not we're not any worse than a lot of these other places. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a great example of, um, there's great examples of, of US projects overrunning, of Japanese projects overrunning, even of Chinese projects overrunning. But it's about, but and when you talk about somewhere like China, obviously you've got state control of the media, you've got much more control over the way that these projects are presented and talked about. So, you know, that's a factor as well. I think it, in the end, it comes down to that. It comes down to how do we frame the stories about these projects? It's not actually the practical execution that is the problem. Mm. One thing that was really marked for me when I, uh, second time in America, I traveled from Niagara, American Niagara to, uh, to New York via the train. So it's Amtrak. And that train journey took, I forget exactly how long it took, but you travel in the length of New York State and it took an inordinate amount of time. It had to be one of the slowest trains I've, I've ever been on in, in my whole life. And I felt like I, I could have said to the kids, let's get out and walk and we'd have got there faster. That it's really marked how poor uh, the, the rolling stock is in the United States. And there's this weird thing, weird from a European perspective anyway, it's not weird in an American perspective, is that I think if people have to travel uh, go and commute, let's say, anywhere between one to four hours, they will comfortably drive that in the United States, where I think that is far in excess of what a UK person would do. You know, you'd probably ju- jump on the train type of thing, or maybe one to five hours, sorry, for the United States. But then after that, then they'll jump on a plane. Whereas in the in the UK, unless you're really going from uh, Glasgow to London, the plane isn't really an option. 
And even then, you're probably more likely going to catch a train. Do we think, Mick, that public transport throughout the Western world is going to get somewhat of a shot, shot in the arm? Forgetting geography and the United States' peculiar problem with how big this country is and, and, and its lack of population density, but basically climate change. And uh, is going to force us all to massively reevaluate public transport. And actually, in this regard, Boris Johnson is somewhat ahead of the curve. Uh, yeah, loath as I am to um, give Boris much credit for 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 HS2, given that HS2 was a project that was first greenlit under the Labour government and has been multiply greenlit since. Uh, but yeah, I think so. I think I think I was talking to someone today about about um, self-driving cars, a futurist who goes in and uh, works with people like GM and, and, and Ford and, and, and these companies are talking about how they're going to become mobility companies rather than car companies in the future. And I think the reality is uh, with cars is I think that we're going to get to a point where um, personal ownership of vehicles is going to become less and less a thing it already is with with generations my generation and generation below me uh, purely out of cost but over time i think that's going to become the case so rather than people owning self-driving cars i think that uh, cars are going to become more like a, a shared public utility and then from that of course public transport m- more generally becomes brought into that system and then you've got a more you know you, you basically have a system where there are uh, different levels of transport that these self-driving cars uh, tie into rail networks, light rail networks, tram networks, um, monorail networks, all of these kind of things so that you, you get a more um, connected system. I think that's where we are eventually end up in and that climate change will have a, a role in that, but also just, just the fact that, you know, fewer people own cars which means more people are going to want to go on public transport, which means the public transport has to improve because there's going to be public demand for saying, listen, these trains need to be cheaper. They need to be better. You know, the demand is there because the thing in the UK, at least, is that you get this issue where people say, well, the government ministers say, well, the trains aren't well used, so we can't justify spending more money on them because not enough people use them. But of course, that's self-fulfilling prophecy because not enough people use them because they don't believe that the trains are good enough. Um, and if you break that cycle, you know, things improve. So, yeah, there are some positives to be seen from the government's attitude to public transport. But I'm doubtful uh, about their real commitment to it and their commitment to actually delivering it in a way that's effective. That's an issue for me because uh, Boris, through his career, his career is uh, Boris Johnson, um, through his career as uh, mayor of London, had this habit of picking up projects that other people who had already started uh, in terms of the buses or um, the bike hire scheme or setting up uh, very ambitious projects that failed to be delivered like the garden bridge and possibly like his new idea of a bridge running from Scotland to uh, Northern the Ireland. Uh, island of Ireland. I'm allowed to give him credit as well but uh, as, a, as a student of history and uh, in a way and, and seeing how large infrastructure projects can kickstart um, economies, classically Keynesian, it's about time that we had uh, some capital building projects in the United Kingdom, which weren't basically centred around London. I know this one starts in London or leads to London, 
but it's a, a, a it's a, about as connecting Leeds, Manchester, and Birmingham uh, to each other as it is, is uh, you know all trains leading to London. Uh, London gets four hundred and nineteen pounds per head in terms of uh, transport spending, more than uh, the north of England. I, I think it's a little bit disingenuous to say that he he's just necessarily just jumping jumping on this. He has a history. All all the things that you said were incredibly true, but considering that the South gets two point six times more transport spending per per capita than than anywhere else in the country, and if you look at other places like Yorkshire in the northeast, it's five times more. I think we have to welcome this. I, I think you're right though that we need to be careful that. Just because he says it's so doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good idea. And a bridge going from the the, the Mull of Kintyre over to to Northern Ireland uh, sounds fanciful in the extreme. And and how will that truly boost the economies um, of 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 those two provinces of the United Kingdom? But getting a train to go from Hull to Liverpool sounds to me like complete and utter sense. And and I and I and I, I you know, look. I'm not saying that this stuff. I'm not saying that the project doesn't make sense. What I'm saying is, HS2 has been greenlit five times now, right? So allowing Boris Johnson to sort of act like he's greenlit it and made this happen is is a political distortion. Um, I'm not saying. But, uh, I'm not saying that it's a bad was idea. In danger have, of being ripped up, though it was. You know, and I don't understand. No, but it was in danger of being ripped up mm. because. His own backbenchers were sort of suggesting that they might rip it up. Like it, that's a false danger, right? It, it allows him has allowed him to take credit for making sure it happens, right? It, it, that is very much spin and very much, uh, you know, false jeopardy. That's I, I, it really is, and and, and he's been very good at at um, you know establishing that and making that work for him. But don't I, I wouldn't be fooled by that. I, I still think, though, uh, Mick, I think, I think you've been a, a little bit harsh here. There were enough Tory backbenchers who were against the project uh, that it was in serious jeopardy. And whether he is... It was, whether, like in, a, in a parliament with the majority he's got and the strength of his whips, it was not really seriously in jeopardy. Nice man that you are are being far too fair as much as you think I'm being far <laughs> too unfair. So probably the truth is somewhere in the middle. All right. Uh, let's agree that it is, and and that infrastructure is completely and utterly what uh, infrastructure spending is completely and utterly what uh, the rest of the United Kingdom needs um, away from the southeast, whether it's the southwest, the Midlands, the North, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, etc. Yeah, that that would I that I totally agree with. My, you know, the, the the ultimate question is always about okay, yes, but who's deciding where it goes? And where is the spending going mm. and how is the spending uh, joined up? That's the question. Well, well, let, let, That's the thing. Let's quickly. Otherwise, you end mm. up with the, the the UK wide version of the cable car that Boris made in, in London, which, you know, works, but takes you from one um, place that no one wants to go to to another place that no one wants to go to. Now it's not as bad as that with HS2, but there is there is a sense of like yes, it, the devil is in the detail. The devil is in how do these things connect up? How does this system as a broader system work? That's the key thing, and and it has to be looked at very carefully because it comes down to stuff like well, who is deciding how local bus networks work well, okay. that feed to these new stations? All of this kind of stuff. It gets very complicated, and it's far too easy to get focused on the on the big 
top line no, you're, you're right uh, you're spending right. You're right. All right. All right. one of the things which um, i did not know uh, until quite recently was that when the deregulation of uh, the buses happened in the united kingdom which was uh, the middle of the 80s uh, under thatcher that london was spared that uh, one of the so the, the, the massive difference is is that you can catch buses at all time of day and night in london to take you from one end of london to another and it's obviously uh, works in lockstep with with the tube network. That is not the same for my hometown of Birmingham. Uh, as an example, you could catch a night bus. There was an extensive night bus network in the mid 1980s. Now it's a fragment of its former glory because of deregulation, because those bus companies, though they get some level of subsidy, fundamentally are now for profit, which then means that if you are uh, living in some, some small rural town, that instead of there being, let's say, one bus an hour to take you to a small village, pre-deregulation, because the council saw it as a strategic and an important service, now you probably get two buses a day because that bus service needs, needs to make a profit. You're completely right. It's, this is a, about the detail. And a lot of the infrastructure and transport spending that the United Kingdom needs isn't necessarily big, flashy stuff. It is about uh, putting uh, councils back in control of buses so that poorer workers, night workers can get from A to B. They don't have to rely on on Uber, on, on the fact that there isn't an Uber service or on local taxi services. Uh, charging them 10, 15, 20 pounds to get from, from point A to point B. Is it significant, Mick, that Northern Rail uh, was taken back into government ownership just last week because um, it's unprofitable? Are we going to have renationalisation yeah, by, by stealth? It is significant and it's interesting that, that, that um, when it comes to bus pol- buses policy and, and to some aspects of the rail policy, um, you know, uh, Boris Johnson's government are essentially um, lifting policies that, that Labour were were um, advocating prior to the election and in their own in their election manifesto and, and taking them for themselves. That said, you know, I, I, as much as I don't like who's who's applying them, that's a good thing. I mean, I think essentially you know rail services in the uk do not and will not work um ever work efficiently or in the interests of the um the passenger when they are owned by private companies particularly foreign private companies who are taking most of the money they earn from them and investing them in the rail networks in their countries of origin i mean it is bizarre to have rail companies in the uk owned by the german rail networks (laughs) So I, I, I think it's kind of faintly ridiculous that you've got, you know, the German National Rail Company owning franchises in this country and then squeezing life out of those and investing the money back into their very good rail system. While the, uh, you know, the people of the people of this country are not getting a good service on from the railways themselves. That that's kind of farcical. And it makes much more sense for railways to be nationalized and whether that happens piecemeal um, through a Tory government or through, uh, you know, some <laughs> fantastical future Labour government, that's A-OK with me. Talking about what's going to be A-OK with me is if we wrap up this episode, because this has been somewhat of a fraught one technically, we have a guest that couldn't join us. We've had at least three outages, technical outages. So uh, we best move on to our takeaways of the last seven days. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mick, uh, you're always good with your takeaways. They're, they're, they're thoughtful and then sometimes they're musical. What's been your takeaway the last seven days, sir? Well, yeah, actually, so my takeaway, you know my takeaway is musical because because behind the, behind the scenes, I mentioned this to you before recording started. Not what it was, though. So um, I've been listening to a lot of um, Philip Glass pieces for piano um, over the past few weeks. Um, I just find that they are um, just like... Yeah, there's a there's a there's elements of repetition in them, but there's a clean there's a, which he's obviously famous for, and but there's also a cleanness and a kind of um, sparseness to them that's that's quite good in a world which is so um, overly stuffed with information and noise. So yeah, I would recommend um, uh, the complete piano etudes of, of Philip Glass, um, played by um, Ma- uh, Maki Nem- Namikawa. She's a Japanese. Um, pianist it, they're really good um you might recognize some of them because they've been used in loads of different films but they it, it's a really a really beautiful thing to listen to um yep so that's a recording from 2014 and i uh, i recommend that particularly um etude number six is my favorite should you want to know <laughs> so there you go uh well no doubt that will end uh end the show we're going to play out to that uh, my takeaway has been a podcast which has become a must listen to for me and uh, i've developed a man crush on uh one of the duo that do it it's a podcast a podcast called pivot 
by Cara Swisher and Scott Garraway. And they talk about, ostensibly, it's a tech podcast. So they talk about uh, Facebook and uh, the business behind tech, not, not just Facebook, but obviously, but Facebook, uh, Google, etc. And the business behind tech, Cara Swisher is a tech no, is a, has been a tech journalist for about 30 years uh, she and uh, she doesn't have to let you know it. she knows absolutely everybody every kind of investor in silicon valley um she's been round to their house and actually had dinner with them but she's quite caustic and she's very uh honest about her assessments of these kind of tech titans but she's been really through the mill of the industry and and pivot deals with tech but also deals with the intersection of tech and politics. And Scott Garraway is a professor at NYU, I believe, and he's got he's set up various kind of like tech companies. But my God, is that dog bad? He calls himself the dog, and he can flip between being incredibly humorous and uh, and just uh, completely dominate the conversation through to being spot on with his kind of financial knowledge and uh, an acumen and, and and to truly value the worth and the stock of a company. He's that good that when he talks about that stuff, it kind of goes over my head. Uh, they're a great duo in terms of how they slightly bicker with each other, then can defer to each other. And he's just very honest with his problems which he's had uh, with mental health and, and, and depression and the breakup of, of his marriage. But he seems like quite a happy soul. So um, I've got a man crush on Scott uh, Garraway. The podcast is called Pivot. Great podcast. And I just think Scott Garraway is an utter start. I love you, sir. You are my Valentine. That has been us on uh, Mid-Atlantic. Uh, we are the show where we talk about uh, news and politics from both sides of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other, generally with a left of centre uh, perspective, because it's the only perspective to have. It's the only one that makes sense. But just before we go completely, I'd like to uh, ask you to go on to iTunes and to write us a review and go and go and rate us. Um, if you think we're rubbish, uh, be honest and, and free with that. If you think we don't, we do any good, uh, give us five stars and, and praise us too. Um, be really good because that way it helps to get uh, new listeners onto the show when we go up those rankings you can go on to midatlanticshow.com and hit the red tab over on the right and you can uh, send us a voice voice note we haven't had any for for a couple of episodes now so let's get those uh, going again if you agree or disagree with anything that myself or mick have actually said or if you have a question about a topic which you think uh, needs some kind of an answer why don't you go on to midatlanticshow.com hit that red tab you've got two minutes to voice your opinion and then you'll make it on to the next show uh it's customary at the end of the show where i say to our guests um tell us where people can find you on social media so i'm not going to break that custom nick uh yeah you can follow me on um on twitter at broken bottle boy and i have a uh, patreon which is uh, patreon.com forward slash mick right uh if you want to uh, uh chuck in for the things that i do online particularly poetry and uh you know tweets and all that kind of stuff uh some people do and uh, i'm appreciative of it and uh, yeah if you like this podcast you know feel free to uh, chuck me some coins yeah all right and of course you can follow me kind of on twitter but i'm rubbish on twitter so don't do that why don't you listen do to my follow me 
He's good. He's he's he always says this, and it's not true. No, no, no. I, 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 listen, I'm bad. I'm bad on Twitter. I'm not. It's not false modesty. I'm bad on Twitter. Well, I like back, it. Back so, in anyway. 2012, I was good on Twitter. I ain't good on Twitter now. But what you can <laughs> do is maybe listen to some of my other output. If you're into, if you're a lover of maps, go on to Map Corner, and uh, and and that is a podcast which I absolutely adore doing, where I just talk about my love of maps with my co-host uh, Claire. Uh, if you love the BBC soap The Archers. Why don't you go on to um, a podcast of your choice and type in Dumpty Dum, where every week we analyse and take the mick out of the thing that we love, which is the Archers. Of course, there's Mid-Atlantic Show, but then there is 10 American Presidents. If you love uh, the whole suite, the majesty of the American presidency through the history of this new scrappy republic, you can listen to 10 American Presidents. And I'm, I'm actually I'm actually working with Corey Brett Schneider, who is a constitutional law scholar over here uh, doing a show on the history of impeachment um i do other shows besides but those are the those are the ones you can be getting on with and going with right now so uh, listen to my output on a podcast of your choice that's been me royfield brown and mick wright talking about us and uk politics we'll see you all again soon in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.